Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have Chris Tate from The Trading Game with me. Chris, how are you? I'm good, Brian. Yourself? Good. So it's three o'clock my time in Nashville. What day and time is it for you? We are 8 a.m. Saturday morning. We talked about this in the pre-call. You're a real sport for doing this on the weekend. You take all kinds of calls at all kinds of hours, but you said you're used to it. You've been trading you know, international markets forever, so you probably are accustomed to this. There are two things about living in Australia that are really good. The first, a long, long way away from everybody else. The bad thing is we're a long, long way from everybody. (laughs) So you actually just get used to the fact that if you want to talk to people in the UK or Europe or the US, that it's either a late night or an early morning. And if you want to go visit them, you put up with the fact that you're probably going to spend a day on an aeroplane, a full 24 hours. It's just the way it is. So we're getting right into it, but I'm curious, and I don't want to date you. You're a young, vibrant man, pre-internet, pre-Zoom, when you were doing these type of work, especially internationally, what was that like? Was it all over the phone? It was exceptionally difficult. We used to have, and this will probably stump many of your younger listeners, we used to have a thing called a telex. And a telex was a printer the size of probably a shipping container. And it would print one line once a minute. And then the phone lines got to the point where you could fax international orders and we would get faxes from London and the US and we would reciprocate. And we used to think that was the height of technology. We used to think that was somewhat akin to black magic. And so it was actually very, very difficult. But the flip side of that was that there were no distractions you were limited largely to the markets that you could access in your time zone or with which you had an office. Now, unfortunately, I can pick up my mobile phone and 
should the feeling take me, I could buy shares in Iceland if I wanted to. So it was bad in terms of the fact that you're very restricted, very, very restricted. Good in terms of the fact that there was no such thing as social media, no such thing as influences, no such thing as the phone to distract you. So this is a theme we're going to revisit throughout this conversation. All in, do you think that kind of efficiency and access afforded by technology has been good or bad for people who trade the market? That's an immensely powerful question to kick off a Saturday morning with. (laughs) I think it's a little bit like when you look at any technology, it is the application of the technology that dictates whether it is positive or negative. And the thing with things like the mobile phone, the internet, it's freed people like you and I from the desk. It's freed us from having to be in a certain point at a certain time. In the past, if I wanted to deal, I would have to be on the dealing desk or I would have to be in the office. I'd have to be at the exchange. I'd have to be on the floor. So it's actually freed me from that. The problem is it's given rise to noise. And we've seen this change in markets in this signal-to-noise ratio. And it's almost like the technology is prompting us continually to trade. It's this constant invocation to do something. And I do feel a little bit sorry for traders and investors who've come behind us, who have grown up in the age of the influencer, of immediacy, of social media, of all the things that compelling them with these very compelling narratives these people put together to actually do things. And unfortunately, one of the problems with trading and investing is it seems to be the more you do, the less you make, but the more you do, the better you feel. And the two aims are, the two outcomes are contrary. It's investing and trading are not about feeling good. They're about doing less and making more. But the technology and the way we approach it opts for this notion of wanting us to have this dopamine hit of just doing more of being active, of being in the game, of being able to go on social media and show a photograph of the sort of watch we bought or go down to the Lamborghini dealer and stand in front of a Lamborghini and pretend that we've just bought it and put that on social media. So it's this terrible double-edged sword that people get caught with. And the unfortunate thing is the less you do, the more you make and the better in the long term you actually feel. But in the short term, we have this constant prompt to do things, to actually trade, to make decisions, to play with the flashing lights we see. So it's really, really problematic. You just used the term game. Do you agree with the sentiment that Robinhood and some of these other apps and meme stock investments are structured like a casino and that they're encouraging people to just, to your point, engagement is the resource that they're trying to take away from people? I think that's very, very true. And I think that's a very apt observation in that you'll find when you look at these apps that there are a lot of parallels between the way the app is designed and the way a game for the phone is designed. And so it's designed with the same psychological triggers in mind. And once those triggers are in place, it's very, very difficult for people who are involved in that to separate themselves out. Humans seem to have this difficulty of removing themselves from points of constant stimulation, particularly when you're young. When you look at things like Robin Hood and its sort of contemporaries, its target market are young males. Young males are hardwired a certain way. 
males really don't mature until they're probably 23, 25, which is why we send young men off to war, because we're not mature enough to actually realise that it's a fairly stupid thing to do. And so there are parallels between the way casinos are designed, between the way these trading apps are designed, and in the way that electronic games are designed. And it's immensely clever play on human psychology. And casinos have had the game worked out for generations. And all that's happened is a, a newer, brighter, smarter generation has just taken that technology, that psychology, that sociology, and they've dropped it in the phone. And that they, you have to give them credit. They've done it exceptionally well. And I wholeheartedly agree with you. And it, it seems like we are now in a world where financial services firms, what you and I would refer to as like old line banks or brokerage shops, this new iteration of these fintech firms are really media companies. Do you agree with that? It's a very good way of putting it. I'd never actually thought of it that way. But I think that's actually a, a very perceptive judgment because everything now seems to fall within this umbrella of media. It is in many ways that displacement of the old broadcast media to a new form of engagement media. And because we've had that spectrum of evolution where we went from broadcast where the TV channels you had were the TV channels you had, that was it, and you watched what was on. We then had VCRs appear way, way back in the dim, dark days, which enables to pick and choose a little bit. Cable then appeared, the satellite then appeared, streaming services now appeared. They're all part of that spectrum of changing engagement and prompting engagement. Because I think what these apps do is that if you feel you're engaged, you feel you're in control or you have some measure of control because you're making the decisions, you're pushing the buttons. When in actual fact, you're not really in control. It's no different from someone who goes to a casino and sits there and endlessly plays the slots. They think they're in control because they're either pushing the button, pulling the handle or whatever. I would imagine the same psychology, the same motivations are felt by young people who use these fintech apps. They feel they're in control because they're the one pushing the buttons. But in reality, they're not. You don't want to use the expression, they're just the hamster in the wheel. But in many ways, they are just the hamster in the wheel. Someone else has made the wheel and someone else is watching them go round and round and round. And in in many ways, it's no different. I don't know whether you've ever been to Tokyo. In Japan, the gambling game of choice is a game called pachinko. And you might have seen these pachinko parlours on TV or film, and they're just endless rows, generally salarymen, sitting at these machines pushing a button. And all that happens from what I can tell having seen them is a series of balls fall. And there's generally a parlour manager who gives a running commentary of what's going on but it's completely nonsensical. It makes no sense. And having even asked Japanese, they're not certain what's going on either. To a Western, it's completely opaque. But the people doing it think they're in control of a completely random event, which is why they keep coming back. They feel that they're somehow in control. And I think people who use these sort of newer generation of apps fall into the same, let's say, basket, a fairly mindless activity. They feel they're in control. They're active. They're doing something. They're happy. So. The goal is obviously to just keep you at the table long enough because the house always wins, right? That cliche. Yes. The way that I've explained it to my son, and the reason I don't let him watch YouTube, we had this discourse about it. 
and I asked him, I said, how do you think YouTube makes money? He's eight. Yeah. So He's bear, with, <laughs> bear with me. And he said, well, you know, I'm not really sure what happens between the shows that you watch. He said, oh, it's advertising. They make money on advertising. I said, yeah, kind of. We kind of went through this in the end of the game or the end of the conversation basically was if you don't know what the product is they're pitching, you are the product. That is the most apt statement in advertising media marketing that is around. If you don't know what the product is, you're the product. And that's a problem. And I think what happens is that people don't understand they're the product. I think this is the difference we now see in this switch from old school economy to new school that we've seen over the past generation is that in the past, you were the consumer. In the present model, you're actually the one being consumed. And there is a difference. There's a difference in tone and intent as well. And that difference is really quite powerful. In the old days, you would go to a store, buy something, be some sort of transaction interaction. Now the transaction is a very, very hidden one. And it's as you say, if you can't see what the transaction is, you're actually the thing being transacted. And it's a very different world from the one we grew up in. So is this dynamic that we read about of this, the rise of the retail investor and you know the masses going up against these hedge fund titans, is it just window dressing? It is a red herring? In all honesty, the, the cynic in me says yes, because I don't think, and I had this conversation some time ago with someone much younger than me when meme stocks were first appearing. And the question I posed to them was a simple one. It was, do you really, really think that people like Jim Simons or Renaissance Technology is sitting there quaking in his boots because you've bought a meme stock? Do you really think he's sitting there going, look, I know I've employed all these hundreds of PhDs. I've got some of the smartest people on the planet working for me. I'm one of the smartest people on the planet, but this 23-year-old who works in a 7-Eleven, he's buying this stock. I'm terrified. I don't think so by any stretch of the imagination. And I don't, it's an asymmetrical contest. And it's asymmetrical in that one group has all the knowledge, all the influence, all the information, all the execution power. And you have another group who has none of that other than this self-inflated belief in their own importance as to what they are capable of doing. And I think it is completely asymmetrical and it is window dressing. I don't think it's a fair fight at all. So we're 16 minutes into the conversation. We haven't really talked about what you do yet. <laughs> we got right into it, which is really fun. But I think people have probably picked up on context. Could you maybe just give the kind of two, three minute background? Because I want to get back into the flow of what we're talking about. Here's the ele- elevator pitch. I am one of the founders of a company called The Trading Game here in Melbourne, Australia. Our job is one of, let's call it trader education. And we educate traders from all around the world. And it doesn't matter professional background, professional interest. We have people who've come from, what well, you know, professional money managers, brokers, hedge fund managers. We have people come from all around the world. Simple imprimatur is that we get people to a point where they have their trading system to trade their markets over their time frame. So it is this, let's call it a notion of personal empowerment. It gives people the capacity to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And it's really as simple as that. And it's interesting that you have 
the word game in your title and trader. Is there a difference in your opinion between a trader and an investor? Look, I think that's a very good question. In my mind, the difference is simply one of time frame. That's it. You can make a case for a difference in intent. In my mind, traders, to a degree, are designed to generate some form of cash flow. There's a difference in the wealth creation aspect. Traders attempt, I think, excessively, by and large, to generate cash flow, but they ignore the wealth creation because they perceive that that falls into the that sort of imprimatur of, well, that's boring wealth creation. Well, that's true, but that's how the world works. You only move forward with wealth creation. So I think the difference is a subtle one based upon time and intent. And you can be both. Your business, your family office can do both. It can have the mandate that we are going to generate cash flow for this part of the office, but this part is restricted simply to a wealth creation mandate. So you can have both, but that is a little bit difficult for people to judge, juggle psychologically and emotionally. So I'm not very active in public markets. I've got a money guy and I assume he knows what he's doing. How do you, could you break down, if I were to come to you and and say, Chris, I want to start trading the market, but I'm coming from zero background there. What does that look like? How do you work with me? What's the first step? And we make, the process. we make an assumption that everybody comes from a zero background. Now, I should preface that by saying that our approach is one of trend and momentum. So if you were to look across sort of factor investing, you have the notion of value and quality, you have volatility, you have trend slash momentum. We approach it from the notion of momentum or trend because we find that is easier to bring people up to speed with and easier to bring them up to speed with in terms of the quantitative tools. One of the things I will say is that with trading, I perceive it to be a trading or investing. At its heart, a paradox. The rules are extraordinarily simple. The execution of those rules, because of the way humans are put together, is exceptionally difficult for us. We often hear the common mantra that Successful investing or trading revolves around the notion of you let your profits run, you cut your losses. You don't allow any one loss to bury you. And when you're on a winner, you stick with it. Unfortunately, human psychology primes us to do exactly the opposite, to let our losses run and to cut our winners. And so a lot of what we do is based around the notion of trying to change people's focus in the way they think and the way they perceive markets. And that change in perception is quite difficult because it's my belief at its heart that trading is more a psychological endeavour than a quantitative one. The reason I think this is you can get investors or traders who have vastly different approaches, but for that individual, it seems to work. Now, I actually think what's occurring there is that their psychology works, not the methodology. It is their interaction with the methodology that works. And that's the thing that drives them. If they had a different psychology, wouldn't work. So our approach is run people up to speed with the tools, spend an awful lot of time with their psychology, find out why they think the way they do, what drives them in terms of their relationship with money, what are the rules they've learnt about money, what are the things they've heard. It might be that 
they've come from a migrant background where the migrant ethos is you go to school, you go to university, you get a very good job. That's how you become successful. And them wanting to perhaps be a full-time investor or move into money management or whatever might run completely contrary to their cultural upbringing and background. And that creates all sorts of friction and all sorts of problems. And one of the issues we face is that conscious mind says, I want to do this. Subconscious mind says, but I must do this. Subconscious always wins. And to use an analogy, this is why when you look at things like diet, people who want to get fitter, perhaps lose a bit of weight, the common instruction is eat less. Well, that's a meaningless statement because the statement has no context in terms of that person's psychology. The same thing can be applied to traders. When traders let their losses run, you simply say, well, enact your stops. But unless you understand why they're doing that, it's a meaningless statement. It has no context for them. And so a lot of our time is spent in context for the technical tools and just getting people up to speed with the way they want to do things. And what we find is something interesting. We find some people who approach us and say, what I really want to do is just manage the family office. That's it. I don't want to do anything else. But they find that as they evolve, they actually feel they actually want to be more active and to take on external funds. It's strange enough, some people have come to us and said, right, what I want to do is I want to become much more proficient for me or my desk at managing our FX exposure. And I want to do that on a daily or intraday basis. And then as they get more and more into the way they think, they go, well, literally to hell with that. I don't really want to do that. I want to move more to a position trader. So it's more about finding out what people want and how they want to do it and then giving them the tools to do it. So we approach it a little bit differently to other people who simply say, well, look, what you do is you put this magic moving average over this stock and you just buy it when the line changes colour. Now, if that worked, everybody who had access to the internet would be vastly successful, but not everybody who has access to the internet is vastly successful. So clearly that approach doesn't work. Clearly there's something else as a driver. And we know this from performance psychology. What separates athletes is some are physically gifted beyond belief, but they're the exceptions. The thing that separates them seems to be the way they think. And it's the same with people in business, same with people in medicine, same across all sort of genres. It is how people think. Why do you think we're, as humans, engineered to let our losses run and to cut our profits and not the other way around? I think there's a variety of things at play. And this has been looked at ad infinitum over generations. Humans, I think, are hard. What? Let me use an evolutionary example. I think that's the best explanation. Our psychology, like the way we look, like the fact that we have opposable thumbs, is the product of endless iterations that have brought us to this point. The same is true about the hardware and software that we exist with. Imagine you're one of our ancestors and you're wandering about the African savannah. You've come across something that is freshly killed. Now, put this in context. Early humans were tiny, and even modern humans, not that physically capable compared to things that wander around the savannah and kill things. So you come across something that's freshly killed. What's your first thought? Your first thought is, what killed it and where is it? So what do I do? I grab as much as I can and I run away. 
because you can never go broke taking a profit. You can see where the modern interpretation has been simply laid over the top of an ingrown behaviour. Now let's come back to our little ancestor. You've come across the thing that's freshly killed. You're taking as much of it as you can and the thing that has killed it reappears. You can't run because we're not that fast. We're very good at running all day, but we can't certainly outrun a predator. What's the advantage we have? The advantage we have is we have a thumb, we have a brain. We think we carry tools. So what do you do? You go for broke. You stand your ground and you go for it. Because remember, it's only a loss when you sell. Again, we have this modern interpretation of a hard-coded piece of behaviour. And so the way we behave and the way we do things is simply a function of the fact that we've behaved this way forever. And we just apply it to a modern framework and we give ourselves little comfort phrases to make ourselves feel better about it. Things like you can't go broke taking a profit, you should leave something on the table for somebody else. And then we have disturbing behaviours such as, you know, I'll use an historical example. Yes, I know I bought Enron at 55 and I know it's a dollar now, but if I buy 300,000 Enron now, my average entry price will be 98 cents. So I'll be in front. So we go for broke. We average down. Humans are the sort of the culmination of the way we've evolved, the way society influences and the way we influence ourselves. So one of your talking points is, hit hard, hit first. Is that in reaction to this natural instinct? It is very, very much so. All human behaviours are, I think, essentially at their base level, a, a function of the way we're coded. Now, the one good thing about being human is you can actually change your behaviour. And we, can, we do that courtesy of our observations. We see things, we observe our own behaviour. And our own behaviour is being modified all the time. We make predictions on the way the world should be. And if the world is not that way, we alter our prediction and in turn alter our behaviour. People can alter their behaviour as individuals. I think it's very difficult for groups. You'll always have this sort of... Markets will always swing between panic and mania because that's how large groups behave. We see this when you see, let's say, riots at a soccer match. That's large group behaviour. That's some form of mass hysteria going on. So individuals can change. Individuals can mould the way they think and behave. And we see this all the time. But it takes work and it's very, very hard. And one of the problems with markets is, in many ways, what you're dealing with is a controlled hallucination. Because markets aren't real and your reaction to them is generally a reaction to something that's not real. All we're doing with markets is making a series of guesses and predictions about what will happen and then in turn about the way we will behave when something does or does not happen. And it makes them a fascinating venue for observing people. It makes it fascinating to observe yourself and the way you behave. They're just very, very interesting environments. So in today's world, we alluded to this beginning the conversation inundated with noise. I mean, I go to the gym in the morning and, you know, CNBC or MSNBC, Fox News, whatever. It's just like data points all day. Yes. How do you sift through this and separate the wheat from the chaff? And what media, how do you digest your media and what signals do you watch for and 
use as your decision-making process for your own book of business? It's a little bit easier for me because over the years I've learned to engage in a complete media blackout. I do not watch or listen to news at all. And I find that it's better for my own mental health and it's better for my own decision-making. Because if you were to if you were to run your life based upon what, let's separate out financial media for a second. If you were to run your life based upon what you saw in mainstream news media, your assumption would be that it would never be safe to leave your home. There's a chance you're either going to be carjacked, you're going to have a home invasion, you'll be stabbed, you'll be raped, you'll be murdered. There'll be some bad event that occurs. When in actual fact, what the news really should be in terms of news media is that for 99.9999% of the population of the world today, nothing happened at all. Good night. Financial media is a little bit different because one of the problems we run into is that financial media is a series from my perception of postdictive rationalizations of what happened in the past. It is in no way predictive. The mistake people make is they think that it is predictive. The future is completely opaque, completely and totally opaque to us. And even people who work off, let's say, valuation models for companies, even their models are completely different from one another. So they're even arguing amongst themselves about what they're measuring to provide a measure of value. And so the only way I've found to deal with this is to completely ablate news from my decision-making regime. And I made that decision decades ago. And in many ways, it's a little bit easier for me because I come from a scientific academic background. So I'm used to generating my own data, my own research. And I understand the power of narrative. Narratives are immensely powerful, people. We like stories. This is why politicians tell us stories instead of giving us data. It's why advertising tells us stories or it implies stories for us. We much prefer that to data. And so when we hear stories about companies, when we hear stories about entrepreneurs, we find those immensely compelling but by and large, the story contains no data, which is problematic. My preference is for data and is to guide people towards data. What is actually happening? You can see behind me, I have a couch. One of the things I do, and I'm a little bit confused, is I will put up a price chart of whatever I'm trading. I'll go sit on the couch, look at this large monitor I have, turn around and go, is it trending up or down? It's trending up. Okay, I'm risk on. And that's the decision-making process. And I find that gives me great clarity. It cleans out a lot of the nonsense that can get inside your head and disturb the way you think and upset your internal decision-making because what you find is that you end up effectively making somebody else's decision and not your own. But the harsh fact about money is that it's your money, you make the decisions. And it doesn't matter whether that's being involved in real estate, being involved in business, being involved in markets. It's your money. You make the decisions. And fair to say that you agree with comparison as the thief of joy, that when you try to look at your performance versus a mega hedge fund and you know looking at the scoreboard every day, is that a losing game for you? Thief of joy is a wonderful expression. And it is because it's a, the analogy I use, and this is something you learn as an athlete. When you go into the gym, there will be days when everybody is better than you. And you think, God, why am I doing this? This is hopeless. I'm completely useless. 
and there'll be days when you go in and you're a god and you can't really differentiate as to why it is. It just happens. The same is true in markets. There will always at some point in time be someone, there will be an 18-year-old living in his mother's basement who took his collective savings from his paper round and bought a meme stock and has made a small fortune and will tell everyone on social media about it. There will be days when the expression we used to use on the desk was, you can't buy a winning trade. That's just the way it is. There are good days, there are bad days. But the bottom line is not today. My argument with people who get caught up in the short term is, that's all well and good. Come back and see me in 15 years' time and then show me. Because you might just have been a flash in the pan and you're comparing yourself to a flash in the pan or someone who's had an exceptionally good day, quarter, half year. And it is, as you say, it's a, a completely losing game it saps the joy out of everything you do. This is a perfect segue because Kathy Wood, ARC, we're recording this November 2021. Have you experienced this yourself or with your clients? The more success they have, the more AUM they gain, the harder it is to maintain alpha? It is. I think there's a few things behind that. I think there's a few functional issues in that opportunities just disappear. There is a nimbleness to small size. And I know of many money managers who will cap their investment at what you would think to be quite modest amounts. I mean, we're talking, let's say, 100 million, because they they understand that that gives them a mobility that having, say, a billion removes from them. And there, there is that notion that you have to ask the question, what is the question? Are you in this to provide alpha, that is to generate skill, to generate value, or are you in this to sort of turn up to you know, your next conference, next meeting and say, well, look, we've just moved from 500 million to a billion under management. That's good for your ego, but are you actually providing value? And the example you use of ARC is a perfect one. And the problem with these rapid growth funds is that you seem to get caught in this terrible perfect storm of assets grow dramatically, performance tapers off. As assets grow dramatically, you become a target for everybody else and you fall. You get caught in this awful self-fulfilling prophecy of your performance drops off, everyone's having a go at you, everyone who's having a go at you says, look, see, I told you so. And this is the thing we're seeing with Cathy Wood. She got a bit of a belting on the way up and now that performance has dropped off, she's getting even more of a belting. And it's just an unfortunate thing. There is an efficient threshold for opportunity and money management. And so when you see colossal hedge funds with vast sums of money under management, it is extraordinarily difficult for them to provide alpha. It's very, very hard, simply because markets don't allow it, because the opportunities are not there. You can't, when you have vast sums of money, You cannot, for example, be an early player in disruptors without completely disrupting the disruptor. So you undo the work you're trying to do. If you take these massive positions, you disrupt what? The very, very thing you're attempting to take advantage of. And that's very problematic. It's much easier to do with 100, 150 million than it is with a billion. And whilst it's very ego gratifying to have that amount of money under management, but also probably good for the egos of people you want to invest with in terms of these small young companies, 
I actually think you do more harm than good. You lose your skill edge, you break their momentum, and again, you pop your head up so that people can play whack-a-mole with you again. I would completely agree with you. I think it's very hard to maintain over the long term and, and also a function of you have that kind of AUM, be you an individual, a family or a firm, you're just in a different business. I mean, there are so many other things that take your time away from the trades and the investing. I mean, how much time is Kathy Wood spending on television programs or at conferences as opposed to researching tech companies, right? That's, that's distraction. And this is a common conversation I have with people is that their business gets to a certain point, a certain size, and they're no longer in that business. They're in the business of human resources. They're in the business of compliance. They're in the business of auditing. And this is something we have found. One of the things we decided when we set this business up was that we would outsource as much as possible the technology because we had had large staffs before and you become a people manager. And that's not what we do this for. And even now, for example, we have a financial services license. Once a year we get audited. The audit takes a month. And it is an annoying, frustrating, expensive and just irritating procedure because you're no longer doing the business. You're doing the business of the business. And that, again, it is a thief of joy. And to segue a little bit, do you believe that the market is efficient? Actually, it's another big Saturday morning question. My belief is that markets are efficiently inefficient. And we, what I mean by that is that it is very difficult for a thing that is run by humans on a very ad hoc basis, such as markets, and markets are ad hoc in terms of their psychology, to be efficient. You will have pockets of inefficiency. One of the problems with things like the efficient market hypothesis is that it makes the assumption that humans are logical so that I will act with this wonderful, cold clinical logic to, in some way, shape or form, manifest the best economic decision I can for myself. Now, that's not true. And we've actually seen this with the rise of behavioural finance. A book everyone should read is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, just simply for the decision-making exploration it undertakes. Our mechanisms of decision-making are quite poor. We're inefficient when it comes to decision-making. We also suffer from bounded decision-making in that we are limited by time, intelligence, and the quality of information we have. None of those can be infinite. And so we're always effectively going off with only part of the story. And if markets were completely efficient, you would not get persistent outperformance. Now, granted, most of the world does not outperform the market, and I think there are functional reasons for that. But there are pockets of individuals who, over the very, very long term, outperform the market. Now, they technically should not exist. Even the law of large numbers dictates that they shouldn't exist, but they do. So I think markets, I think it's easy to think in ter- markets in terms of presenting you with opportunities. My view of the market is it simply says to me, here is an opportunity for you. Do you wish to take it? Yes or no. And over time, it will present me with an infinite number of those. It will present me with the same opportunity over and over again. 
And it's incumbent upon me to have some sort of mechanism of saying, well, that opportunity suits my way of seeing the world. It suits my trading methodology. It suits my end game. So I will take it and I will manage as I go along. And I think from my perspective, I tend to substitute the word efficient with the word opportunity. Markets are a mechanism of presenting opportunities to individuals. It's up to the individual to work out what they want to do with that. So what do you say to folks who assert that just put it all into ETF funds, call me in 10 years? I actually think that for, I'll use a domestic example we have here. Our retirement savings program here in Australia is called superannuation. It's the same as your 401k. It's a retirement fund. Employers kick into it. Individuals can top that up. Now, the vast majority of our superannuation managers underperform the market. They're woeful. And for the vast majority of people, they would be better off going into a very, very passive either 60-40 split index ETF cash or depending upon their life cycle of their you know, where they sit relative to their retirement age, all into the ETF. Because what the research tends to indicate is that the performance would instantly double, their costs would instantly halve, and much of the looming retirement crisis we have here in Australia as the population ages would be solved. I think for many, many people, that is a very, very powerful approach. And if the ETF is selected carefully, as in it's simply one of the giant index-following ones, not one of the obscure two or three times leverage ones based upon an obscure sector or market index, then it works powerfully. For those who want something different and who want to take the time to pick up the skills and learn about themselves, they can do better. But it comes back to context. It comes back to what do you want to do? Let's say I run a business and that business is not involved in money, It's very profitable, but it takes a great deal of my time. For me, it's not worth my time sitting down learning how to manage my money. It is worth my time saying, right, I understand how markets perform in broadest senses. I understand that this ETF will outperform, let's say, 95% of all managers. Through the course of my working life, I'm just going to pour excess funds into that. And it will be set and forget because I know over time, indexes, because of the way they're constructed, will always move to new highs because that's just the way they're constructed. They're designed to do that. And that, for that sort of person, is much better sort of approach. The analogy you could use is, let's say you're an orthopedic surgeon, you make a great deal of money, you're interested in property, what's the easiest thing for you to do? Well, the easiest thing for me to do is to buy an apartment building and just leave it. The hard approach would be for me to go, well, I've got a greenfield site. I think I'll do my own development. It it doesn't sit with where you are and what you want to do. So again, we come back to context. We come back to what are you trying to do? What is your end game? I think with a lot of people, they don't spend enough time. This even applies to very large family offices. They don't spend enough time thinking about what is the end game? What is the mandate to generate the outcome I want? And so unfortunately, it just become idea of the day. What's today's idea? What have I heard? As you say, I've been down at the gym. Fox Business has been on. Some talking head has said that. That's a good idea. And if you have no mandate, if you have no outcome in mind, everything's a good idea. But everything can't be a good idea. Biggest misconception about trading? That it's easy. That by, by, by and large, and I would say that, that applies to all 
forms of investment. It doesn't matter whether it's real estate, business, whatever. This misconception that you can do a morning course, give up your job, and with $10,000, make $10,000 a week trading cryptocurrencies. That, that is the bane of everybody's existence who's a grown-up. Drives us mad. What do you think about crypto? I think you have to be careful and you have to separate out the technology, the emerging technology of blockchain versus these coins that are being, let's use the old-fashioned term, minted, generated. One is a technology that might actually find use somewhere down the track. The other, I think, and this always rhymes people, the other, I think, is this generation's version of the South Sea bubble or tulip boom or our version of the dot-com boom. But having said that, that does not in any way, shape or form detract from the fact that whilst these things are running, they're very, very powerful trading tools and they do have the capacity to yield tremendous gains for traders. But we do have to be careful in what the approach we take. Blockchain is different to Bitcoin and Bitcoin is very, very much a wild approach to trading. They're a tool you use and one day the tool will be worthless. We are bumping up against an hour here. It's been great. I'd love to ask managers this. You know, we're heading into the new year, running out Q4 2021. People are probably harvesting gains. What are your best ideas right now? That's a really good question. At present, I'll default a little bit to my local market and I'll talk about where I'm risk on. I'm risk on certain rare earth stocks because that's simply the way the world seems to be going. Same with hydrogen. Same with uranium. We've seen uranium have a pop. At present, I'm still risk on part of the energy sector, particularly crude, but risk off soft commodities and the like. One of my concerns, and it's not really a concern, it's an observation, concerns too strong a word, is that whilst I look at things like the 500 and you see it banging up against its highs, and as you say, there is some farming of gains probably going on, You've got a little bit of a situation where the number of stocks within the S&P 500 that are above their long-term averages is just drifting off a little bit. And that dislocation always makes me pause for a second. Still long all equities markets because that's simply where the game is. But what I do find interesting, I found it fascinating this week has been that the toing and fro- froing. You mentioned Kathy Wood. Toing and froing between her view on inflation and that of Jack Dorsey of Twitter. Jack Dorsey is one of these hyperinflation mad people. Kathy Wood is going deflation. This wonderful polarity intrigues me because it presents investors with a conundrum. They can't both be right. They're both looking at the same thing, but they both can't be right. And I think one of my observations is to observe carefully when you get these distinct dislocations in people's opinion, and they are diametrically opposed. And you are getting two camps emerging at present. One is the deflationary camp, one is the hyperinflation camp. And I'm always interested as to the effect that has on people's decision-making within markets. So one of my ideas at present, or one of my strategies, is simply to watch this argument. And see what happens. (laughs) And see what happens. It, It is... Markets are very, very interesting because particularly the US market, hiccup in 2008, recovered very quickly. Hiccup with COVID, recovered very, very quickly. It's a very, very dynamic, powerful market. And it's a market that is or has been full of change because we've had all these new forms of technology appear. 
And we now have larger-than-life characters like Elon Musk who are intriguing to watch, if nothing else, for the entertainment value they produce. And so it's markets, I think, are going through. You don't want to say an evolutionary cycle. I wonder whether they're repeating patterns of several hundred years ago where we had very, very powerful individuals such as the Rothschilds and such as in the early part of last century, we had these bigger-than-life figures who were missing for some time. The market was missing a little bit of colour for quite a while as people just went about their business. And now, again, we come back to that statement you made about media. It seems as if business is media. It is, you know, my view is that Elon Musk is an entertainer, a vastly wealthy one, but he provides enormous entertainment. I would agree. And I think that's probably a good place to hand off here. I want to thank you for the time, especially on a Saturday morning. <laughs> no. You know, it's terrific that you carved out some of your weekend. If people are interested in learning more about you and, and the firm and, and your coaching, what's the best way for them to get in touch? The best way is, as always, through social media. You can hit us up on the internet at tradinggame.com.au. You can find me on LinkedIn under my own name, but the easiest way is to find us via our website. And if anyone wants to have a chat, they can email me. And it's simply chris at tradinggame.com.au. Chris, thank you so much. A lot of fun. We're going to have to do a repeat and get into some of the other things that you can talk about. That's been brilliant. It's been a good way to start the weekend. (laughs) Wonderful. Thanks, Chris. Enjoy it. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.